I'd like to tell you a story. One day Jesus sat beside the Sea of Galilee. Such great crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat there, while the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, Listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell on the path, and the birds came and ate them up. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and they sprang up quickly, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and brought forth grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Let anyone with ears listen. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I've been living on this farm since 1945. Some years later, my father and I built a home for me and my bride, and we've had a good life here. When I walk these fields, it reminds me that in Jesus' day, most people were either farmers, fishermen, or merchants in the towns. Your trade was usually the trade of your father, a trade that had been passed down from generation to generation. You became good at your work because you knew and understood the tricks of the trade. A good farmer learned early on his life, even as a young child, how to identify good soil, but also how to be a good steward of the seed, so that as you scattered it in the ground, you would not be wasteful but careful. One day, a group of farmers and others gathered around Jesus as he told them a story about their trade. A sower, Jesus said, went to a field and cast seed far and wide, recklessly, indiscriminately, tossing it here, there, and everywhere. Some seed fell on good soil, some on rocky ground, some in the middle of a busy path. Surely the farmers looked at each other and thought, what is he talking about? How wasteful, how reckless. But some of those farmers may have remembered that century earlier, the Lord said to Isaiah, so shall my word be. Word that is scattered upon the earth, it shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that for which I purpose. A gift of God, scattered recklessly, indiscriminately, abundantly, it shall accomplish that for which I purpose. How reckless, how indiscriminate, how faithful is our God. Matthew 13, the sower and the seed. I grew up in a, as a city boy, Columbia, South Carolina, not a big city, but certainly not rural America. I did know where a few peach farms were in Lexington County, and well, my mom and dad planted a garden in the backyard, so that was pretty good, but yet yeah, that was as close to farm life, pretty much, that I would get. 
until I turned around nine or ten years of age. Then I'd spend up to two weeks on my aunt and uncle's farm um, each summer, Liberty, North Carolina, somewhere near Burlington. Not much around except pastures and cornfields, long stretches of roads without stoplights and, and nights. Oh my goodness, endless nights that were as quiet and dark as at least it felt like the first days of creation. My room was directly underneath a big elm tree, and the best part about spending the night at their house was opening up the windows at night and, and letting the breeze blow through the shears, lifting up those shears, forming a canopy over, over your bed. It was just a beautiful place to fall asleep. They lived on a small farm, I don't know, maybe 150 acres or so. I do remember a hundred head of cattle, lots of corn and tomatoes, chickens and rabbits, a pretty simple place, to be honest, but there was nothing simple about their work. Uncle Winford was up like all farmers. Of course, before dawn, he had chickens and cows to, to feed. I'd join him after breakfast and, and work in the fields until lunchtime. By, by that time, this city boy was exhausted, tuckered out. I was ready for an afternoon nap, but not Uncle Winford. He kept at it until dinner, Monday through Saturday. Sunday, he'd take off, of course, well, except to feed the chickens and the cows, but that was always done before church, the Lord's Day. Uncle Winford wasn't a rich man, but he was an honest man. He was a faithful man, a good man. He didn't worry about worldly success. He just worried about doing his work and doing it well and caring for his neighbor. An old farmer once said, the Lord takes care of the harvest. I just plant the seeds. It's similar to what St. Paul said to, to the Christians in Corinth after he had established the church there. He wrote them in, in this letter to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, said, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but, but God has been making it grow. All of that, if you really think about it, is rather countercultural these days. I mean, especially in a world that measures success by the size of the harvest, is God inviting us to, to think in different ways? Well, just maybe. Jesus told this story of a, of a farmer who scattered seed far and wide. And if you notice, he scattered with rather reckless abandon. Uh, some of the seed fell where it could be tilled under, where it could be watered, where it could be nourished and expected to flourish. But other seed fell in places where it is not going to grow, or at least doesn't seem like it would grow, places where it would be choked away by, by weeds or thorns, uh, places where it was thrown on rocky ground where, where the ground could not even be tilled under. And that's it. That's the story. I mean, one of Jesus' most popular parables, it's a parable that in, appears in three of the four Gospels, and yet that's all there is to it. There's no plot, there's no surprise ending, it's just a farmer sowing his seed. Now, I find it interesting as I reflect on this particular parable that my Uncle Winfred always seemed to know which ground was the most fertile. And so, naturally, that's where he planted his corn and other crops, where it was most likely to grow. But there was never a guarantee, was there? I mean, some summers were brutally hot, drying up corn. Some summers, tomatoes would just wither on the vine. On occasion, though, there was too much rain, or maybe there was a late hail that would bruise young fruit. But Uncle Winfred just kept working, kept tilling, kept weeding, kept sowing the seed in hopes that the harvest would be plentiful, but all the while trusting that the Lord of the harvest would be faithful. 
And that's hard, isn't it? I mean, for you and for me, that's hard to trust that the Lord of the harvest will be faithful, especially when we're taught to place our confidence, our success, our joy on the harvest. I mean, that's fine when things are going well, but what happens when they aren't? What happens on those days, on those seasons, on those times in our lives when the harvest feels so lacking, so small? It feels like one of those times, doesn't it? Mother Teresa visited a terribly poor family in in Calcutta. They were starving, and she brought them a big bag of rice. But as soon as she received it, the mom of this family took the rice, quickly left their shack of a home, only to return a few moments later with what now was only a half a bag of rice. Mother Teresa was stunned. She was rather flabbergasted, and, and she asked what was going on. The mom replied, well, my neighbor is hungry too. You see, in that very moment, can't you see this poor, terribly poor mom scattering seeds on the ground? recklessly caring for her neighbor. I mean, she had her own very specific, very real needs, right? And yet recklessly sharing, faithfully loving her neighbor. It looks like this woman has nothing. And of course, according to the world's standards, according to the world's measuring stick, she has nothing. But in her care for her neighbor, she has everything. I get it. It's, it's a paradox. It's, it, it's crazy, isn't it? But think of Jesus. We hear this particular parable in the 13th chapter of Matthew. That's significant because up until this point, crowds have been following Jesus. Crowds have been surrounding him, energized by his preaching and by his teaching and by his, by his ministry. But from this moment onward, that's not necessarily the case. From this moment onward, people start to slowly turn against him. It starts with the religious leaders, the authorities. It, it then continues to the rich and the powerful of the day. The government leaders, they turn against him. And eventually, all the people who once had been following him, they too, they turn against him. There doesn't appear to be anything majestic around the corner, nothing that smelled of success. And sure enough, by the end of his public ministry, he had nothing, all but a few had turned against him. So, what that means, of course, is that by human standards, he was a total and absolute failure. He was just another troublemaker carted off to execution, and sure enough, Jesus' life would end dead on a cross. Mary, his mother, wailing uncontrollably next to him. Peter running and hiding. Judas hanging from a noose that he had strung up around the branch of a tree. Where was the harvest in this particular moment? Yesterday, I walked into uh, Lorna Reeser's hospital room at 10.20 a.m., 20 minutes after she had died. Those of you who knew Lorna knew that when she walked into the room, she presented you with a gentle, faithful, just sort of a beautiful aura. That was her presence. Lorna gave her all in this life. I'm not just saying that, by the way. This is very true of Lorna, remarkably faithful woman, caring and loving in ways unlike anyone I think I've ever, ever met. She lived 
an abundant life, not because of her possessions, but because of the joy of relationships that she shared with you and with me. And yet, in that particular moment, as I walked into that room, some would conclude that the grip of death is what had the final word in her journey, but you would be wrong. Because you see, in that moment, and look, friends, sometimes things are only explained through pure mystery. In that particular moment, there was a a holiness, there was a sacredness. When you could tell beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus had taken her hand and said, death will not have the final word for you, Lorna. A harvest beyond your imagination is what awaits you. A hundred, some sixty, some thirtyfold, Jesus would say in the words of this parable. Friends, God is faithful in His promise to produce an abundant harvest in this life and in the life to come. What I hear in this parable is twofold. One, God has scattered the seed of love and grace and mercy far and wide, recklessly, indiscriminately, without judgment, without precondition, day by day by day, scattering the seed of goodness and grace upon you, upon me, upon all of this world. So much has fallen on fertile ground. You know it. You've seen it. I've seen it. We see it in so many different places in this remarkable world. And yet some, no doubt, has fallen on ground that is, well, let's say not yet ready, that is, that is not yet prepared, someday, but n- not yet. But regardless, and here's the point, the seed continues to be thrown. When times are good, the seed is sown. When, when times are tough, the seed is sown. When, when we live in a world of confusion and fear, the seed is sown. When we face the pain of grief and the anxieties of tomorrow, the seed is sown recklessly, indiscriminately, faithfully, because our God is a faithful God. What I also hear is a beautiful invitation to imitate this faithful sower day by day, you and me, to to sow seed of goodness and grace and mercy, recklessly, indiscriminately, faithfully, because there you will find your abundance There, this world will see and experience the abundance of of God in in surprising places and ways. There, this world will see the amazing grace of God who is always faithful. One final comment, because it is significant. Over the next two weeks, we will be, at least here at St. John's, we'll be returning to our practice of Holy Communion. We've missed it. We have not shared communion in this place since the 1st of March first week of March. It's been a long, long time. When I think of Holy Communion, I need to be reminded over and over again that it's not my table. It's not St. John's table. It's not our denomination's table. It's Christ's table. And anyone who is hungry is welcome to that table. Jesus makes the invitation list. After all, not, not us, certainly not me. And if, as I think about it, that's deeply appealing to people who long for communion with God, especially these days. But that would be true at all times. For people who long for some kind of communion with neighbor, even for those who long for communion with their enemy. 
That's why the table has been one of the most powerful, but also one of the most countercultural aspects of Christianity and of the Christian life. As this world divides, Christ draws us together. Now, it's also why it's critical, essential to the life of the church, because it's here where we are are fed, every time we gather around it, fed by the body and blood of Christ. It has nothing to do with an impressive preacher or a great choir or, sorry, Ed, even a grand singer. Nothing to do with any of that. But it's all about gathering around a table, recognizing my need and my neighbor's need for the life of this world. Rachel Held. Evans was a young writer who died unexpectedly last year, brought a lot of grief to those who followed her and were just so inspired by her writings. But one time she was reflecting on uh, her practice of Holy Communion. I cannot remember whether I saw this in an interview or something. It, I don't, it was not something that she had necessarily written down, but it was a, a beautiful sort of way in which she approached communion. Her image, her, 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 her mind is centered on hands that are held out, hands that are empty, that are cupped, that are always ready and now waiting to receive. Because in this particular posture, it is one of the most, if not the most, vulnerable and sacred positions a person can have. This is the body of Christ broken for you. Those are the words that we share to everyone, to the class clown, to those who are picked on, to the grieving, to the unbelieving, to those who are crying, to those who are doubting, to everyone. And and what we're saying is that this is enough. This body and blood is enough. Now, I get it. That's a mystery. It's something that, that many may never fully understand or comprehend, none of us truly, but at this table, it's a truth that I cling to, that the church has, clings to throughout the centuries, that Christ is enough. So when I show up for communion, when I kneel at the table, it's in that moment that I see how desperately I need God. But it's also a reminder of how desperately I need my neighbor, how desperately I need the person next to me, also how desperately I need the person who I disagree with. It's a powerful sign of God's grace. It's a seed of God's grace that is being sown, that is being scattered into this world and into my life, literally being placed within my body over and over again. And so my prayer is this, for myself and for you. O Lord, may that seed that you have placed within me, may that seed grow and flourish, that I, that we might be your abundant harvest for the sake of the world. Amen.